Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our Easter series, The Resurrection, with a message entitled, Changed by Truth. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Sometimes people have a misconception. See, they think that truth or doctrine is not practical and it doesn't touch their everyday life. Now, that's especially so when it comes to the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. I mean, logically, this doctrine should be tied together with end times teaching, which often, at least to many people, leads to endless speculation. You know, it's not that we disbelieve the resurrection. It's just that at least to some, although they might not admit it, They think that spending too much time thinking about the resurrection from the dead distracts from living well here and now. I mean, think about what we sometimes say. You know, that person is too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Or or we say, you know, Christianity is not just pie in the sky by and by. It's about and then, of course, you fill in the blank. You know, behind these statements are the nagging doubts that some of us have, not in the resurrection, but in the value of the doctrine. We believe we should be speaking about how to live well right now, how to be on mission now, how to heal broken marriages, how to, how to deal with poverty or injustice now, you know, and so on. Many think of the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead as a doctrine that's rightfully taught to the aged and the dying, but not to those who are full of life and, and living fully now. And when we think this way, we're missing something vital. Only those who fully understand and embrace the doctrine of the resurrection really can live well now, or let me put it another way. What you think about and believe about concerning the future completely dominates how you live today. If eternity is not constantly before you, you will lose all sense of what the present actually means. Now, in our next broadcast, I want to show how the doctrine of the resurrection affects how we live today. But in today's broadcast, let me make sure that we understand this doctrine well. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 15, 22 to 28. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in its own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Wow, that's a mouthful. Now, in the next section, Paul's going to answer how practical that doctrine actually is. But now, let's look at the doctrine itself. Now, from the outset, please notice the word order in verse 23. It says, but each in its own order. Now, that word can refer to rank as in the military. In other words, a general outranks a captain who outranks a sergeant and so forth. If that's what Paul's trying to say, he means to say that Christ is raised first simply because he outranks all others. But of course, that's true. But most likely, that's not how Paul intends the word here. The word is meant to depict a sequence in resurrection. Christ is called the first fruit. In other words, sequentially, he is raised first. Now, since Paul is talking about the end times, he means to say to us that the end times in which the dead are raised has already begun. 
The new order of things when the dead receive their bodies has occurred already now. The future has invaded the present. Think of it in terms of some science fiction movie you might have seen. You know, someone from the future has a time machine and and comes to our present time period. But of course, that doesn't quite capture the idea. The idea is that the future event, when God's kingdom arrives, is is suddenly and fascinatingly and, and surprisingly found not everywhere, but in one individual. Sequentially, one resurrection has taken place, and this resurrection has happened far ahead of the great day of the resurrection of the dead. And that's what makes the resurrection of Jesus so very fascinating. Yes, the entire human race awaits the day of the resurrection of the body, an event that is prophesied and lies before every human being. But now, almost out of sequence, Jesus, the first human being, was raised far ahead of the rest of the resurrections. But it has occurred. And the occurrence of this one resurrection is a signal of two things. The first thing it signals is that the other resurrections are going to happen. The resurrection of the bodies of the dead is not so fantastic anymore, seeing that one such occurrence has taken place. And the second thing that it signals is that we have entered into a new age, into a new era. See, there's a sequence in resurrections, and the first order of them has already begun. So when when people ask, do you think that we're in the end times? The biblical response is, of course we are. The end times began when the dead started rising. One dead man is already risen, and with his resurrection, we're launched into the last days. So for our benefit, let's put it this way. What happened when Jesus came to earth? Well, we know that he preached the good news of the kingdom. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. And then in his resurrection, he demonstrated that the great king of heaven has begun to reign as king of kings and lord of lords. So we know that this is what Paul has in mind, for he hints at it all through this passage. You know, the beginning of verse 24, he says, then comes the end. Beginning of verse 25, he says, for he must reign. See, the assumption is that Christ rules a kingdom now. Let me put this in context. You'll remember that when Jesus began his public ministry, the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness, which is in the Judean desert, and there he was tempted by Satan. One of those temptations was recorded in Luke 4, verses 5 to 6. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. It's often been pointed out that Jesus did not respond to this temptation by saying, Satan, you don't have or you don't govern the kingdoms of this earth, so how can you give them to me? He doesn't say that. In fact, Jesus doesn't challenge Satan's claim. You know, with that comes the assumption that because of sin and rebellion, the kingdoms of this world were truly in Satan's grasp. His kingdom reigned over all human civilizations. Now, that doesn't mean that there wasn't any goodness and decency in the world, for God still remains sovereign. He provides what's called common grace so that human decency is still found in this world. God's goodness remains in spite of the prevalence of Satan's kingdom. You know, but it does mean that the way to reconciliation with God has been blocked for the kingdoms of this world, and even that the knowledge of God is hidden from human beings. We may know some things about God, but as Paul says, human beings continue to suppress the truth about God. But then began the ministry of Jesus. 
And at one point when driving out demons, the religious leaders were in disagreement as to how he was doing this and listened to his answer. It's recorded in Luke 11, verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, as Jesus begins his miraculous ministry of healing the sick and and casting out demons and raising the dead, something new is happening in this Satan-controlled world. A new power has arisen and come to challenge Satan's kingdom, and Satan was losing hunks of his kingdom to this new ruler, Jesus. Christ's great kingdom was beginning. That new kingdom, which actually was taking territory away from Satan, reached a magnificent climax, which is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Listen to how the writer in Hebrew states it. I'm reading Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So that in his death and bodily resurrection, Christ delivered a mortal blow to Satan's kingdom. The resurrection of Jesus then signals that the old era has been defeated and that a new era has already begun. The great end times rule of God has begun. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He means that the very thing that Satan tempted him with has now been taken away from Satan by force, and Christ owns them. Now, if that's all true, and it is, then why is it that we still live in a world of suffering and death? You know, isn't Satan still ruling? And in response, we must be careful in our answer. Of course, Satan is still active. He's still deceiving. He's still blinding the eyes of the unbelieving. He's still creating hatred and wars and ruin and, and sin and death. But if Jesus can say after the resurrection that he now has authority over heaven and earth, how can that be? One answer has been provided by the theologian Oscar Kuhlman, and he said, Satan is not powerless, but his power has been broken. The decisive battle in a war may be won, and the tide of battle turn before gaining the final victory. And indeed, that's what happened at the resurrection of Jesus. The tide of battle turned, and Christ now holds the keys to victory. With the initial Back to the Bible India Pastors Conference now complete, the ministry partnership we share continues as the Bible teaching messages of Dr. John Newfeld and a variety of other Bible teaching and education ministries continue. The leadership in India have spoken of the great encouragement as the ministry reestablish its presence across the country on radio, online, through print resources, and of course teaching conferences like those that have just taken place. So it's with enthusiasm that we continue to support a renewal of ministry that promises to impact so many lives. The cost incurred by Back to the Bible Canada this year will be in the area of $75,000 or approximately $6,250 a month. Your continued commitment through a one-time gift or becoming an international ministry partner would mean so much. So contact us today at 1-800-663-2425 or online at backtothebible.ca and join our international ministry efforts. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the decisive war with Satan had been fought and won. It's like the Allied invasion of the beaches of Normandy in the Second World War. 
You know, once the Allied troops had landed on the beaches of France, Hitler's power was broken, and it was only a matter of time when his, this would result in his total ruin, and so it was with the cross. See, once Christ died and was raised, a beachhead had been established, and the decisive battle had been won. The tide of battle had turned, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and with that, Christ began his church, and through his church, he is charging the gates of hell, and daily around the world, he's dragging the victims of Satan out of his kingdom and bringing them to himself. Well, then, that's what happened at the first coming, but what happens at the second coming? Well, according to our text, four things happen. First, in sequence, the bodily resurrection of believers happens. Look at verse 23. But each in its own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The idea here is that at the second coming of Christ, anyone who has been taken by force from Satan's dominion, that is, those who are converted, born again, confess Jesus as Savior and Lord, at the second coming, our dead and even decayed bodies will be raised. Paul does not here discuss what happens to a believer when he or she dies before Christ returns. That's found in other places in the Bible. But I want to raise the issue because it's a question that gets raised over and over again. According to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8, we know that when any believer dies in Christ today, they are immediately in the presence of Christ. Paul writes, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage and would rather be, listen to this, away from the body and at home with the Lord. So here we see Paul's conviction that when we are away from the body, meaning when the body dies, we are at home with the Lord. And he repeats that theme in Philippians 1, to 23. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. Listen now, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. In other words, Paul expresses his assurance that when he departs, that is, when he no longer lives in this flesh, when he dies, he will be at home with the Lord. How else could he say to die is gain? See, many Bible teachers have called this the intermediate state. You know, that is, when any believer dies, they go to be with the Lord, but they still await the resurrection of the body. And what this experience is like, well, according to Paul, it's far better than our present experience, but it's not yet the ultimate experience. When Christ returns, then and only then will the dead be raised, meaning the bodies of the dead will be raised. You know, this bodily resurrection is going to initiate us into the ultimate experience. Okay, what else happens at the second coming? Well, so first we've noted there is our bodily resurrection. Then second, in sequence, is the defeat of all powers. Look again at verses 24 to 25. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Notice here that Paul mentions three things that Christ will destroy. I mean, first, every rule, then every authority, and then third, every power. So what's he referring to? I want you to notice how similar that wording is to the wording that's found in Ephesians 6 verse 12. I mean, there Paul were right, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, Paul believes that there are some basic principles of this world which are governed by Satan and his demons. They form power centers which would control governments and societies and cultures and individuals. 
They do this so that they can protect their kingdom from the onslaught of the kingdom of God. You see, evil powers are right now being hard-pressed, and so they fight either by influencing the passing of laws that would outlaw the preaching of Christ in some countries, or by creating environments of unbelief that discount the message in other countries. See, we therefore are engaged in warfare against them, but when Christ comes, he's going to place these enemies under his feet. Now, in the ancient world, a king would place his feet on the neck of a defeated enemy. Now, that's the picture. Christ is going to place his feet on the necks of Satan and his demons and all power that opposes his rule. So it is coming. There's going to be first the bodily resurrection of believers, then secondly, the defeat of all demonic powers, and then thirdly, the defeat of death itself. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, not only Satan, but death itself is going to be utterly defeated. Death shall be no more. And then finally, in the last in our sequence is when Christ, according to verse 24, and then again, verses 27 and 28, hands the kingdom to God the Father. So let's read verses 27 and 28 again. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, that is God the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. I know, I know. It's a complicated passage of Scripture. So let's take it one problem at a time. First, this passage clearly teaches that Jesus the Son will be subjected to God the Father. So let's just take a little side road and explain that thought. From every area in the New Testament, we're taught that the Father and the Son are completely equal. For instance, listen to John 5, 21 to 23. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all, listen now, may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So how do we honor the Father? Answer, we worship the Father as the one and only God. So how do we honor the Son? Answer, we honor the Son as the one and only God. That's why Peter calls Jesus our Savior and our God. 2 Peter 1 verse 1. John says the Son is both with God and is God at the same time in John 1 1. The writer of Hebrews calls the Son the exact imprint, the exact representation of the Father in Hebrews 1.3, and Paul says that Jesus has always existed as God in Philippians 2 verse 6. I mean, from every part of the New Testament, we are told that there is but one God and that this one God exists eternally as three persons and that all three persons are eternal and they're equal. All three are the one God. So then, what is this in verse 28, where we are told that the Son, fully equal with the Father, is put in subjection to the Father? And the answer to that is actually a wonderful thing. Throughout the entire ministry of Jesus, Jesus constantly testified that he submitted his will to that of the Father. What does that mean? It means that the Son, who is fully equal to the Father, submits to the Father. You see, in the Trinity, we learn that submission does not mean lower status. You know, wives, please take note of that. You're called to submit to your husbands, but that submission, in fact, is patterned on the submission of the Son to the Father, a submission of equals. The same is true in our work situation. It's true in church, where we are called to submit ourselves to our pastors and our leaders. 
So to teach that the Son is subordinate to the Father by nature, well, that's a false teaching. But to teach that the Son is subordinate to the Father by his mission, that's biblical. The Son submits himself willingly to his Father. Now, nowhere is that seen more than on the cross where the Son says to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. I submit my reluctance to the cross to your perfect plan. So then, once the Son has completely laid Satan and his kingdom in utter ruin and rescued all his own people from the power of Satan's kingdom and has raised their bodies in resurrection and has utterly crushed death itself, he presents himself as a victorious conqueror before the Father, bearing with him all those who are his own and says to the Father, all these are yours. I've won them for you for your glory, and he gives glory to the Father, and as he does so, he himself, even though fully equal with God, as our human representative, submits himself to the rule of the Father. And of course, all who follow Christ see Christ as their example, and they bend the knee and worship the Father. That, dear brothers and sisters, you know, that all that complication, that's the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. And how is this practical? Because you'll remember that I said it was. Well, it's practical because this gives us courage to face all the difficulties that we face today, knowing that Satan's kingdom has suffered a fatal blow and it's on its way to complete defeat. Glory be to God. Wow. I'd like to say I caught all of that, but I think I want to listen to it again, John, to see exactly what I've missed or what I missed out on. Uh, but this is this is an important doctrine. Uh, uh, this is something that's critical for us to understand. It is, Ben. And, and, you know, sometimes when we read through our Bibles, it's really easy to understand. It's kind of like running through an open field. I mean, it's just, you know, we, we make, you know, through distance very quickly. But sometimes it's like climbing a very steep mountain. And when we do that, I would encourage the reader not to simply pass it by, but to take the time that's required. I mean, I argue that many times, you know, reading the Bible requires us to read more slowly than we've ever done before. But when we do so, the results that we gain from it are so beneficial for our lives. So just the idea that there is a progression in which Satan's kingdom is being defeated one step at a time, we're witnessing that progression today. But when Christ comes again, that progression will be complete and final. So, you know, working our way through that, we're emboldened to say, oh yes, this is what we're experiencing today. Satan is already being defeated, and it's only the prologue to the real story when Christ puts his feet on Satan's neck and when all of Satan's authority is forever bound. I mean, uh, that in a nutshell is what we're saying. Well, there's some great treasure to be found when we dig deep into God's Word. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. We hope you're enjoying Dr. Neufeld's new Easter series entitled The Resurrection. This series should encourage every follower of Jesus that the time will come when we will reap the ultimate benefit of our faith in Christ. When the Easter story, Jesus' sacrifice, death, his resurrection will be fully known. So make sure to join us every weekday, understanding the full implications of the Father's provision for you. 
And if you miss a message, remember you can catch up online or to ensure you never miss again, sign up for our daily podcast, mobile app, or audio mail sent to your inbox every weekday. All of these opportunities and so many other resources are available at backtothebible.ca or by calling 1-800-663-2425. And please remember, all that is accomplished in the teaching of the Bible is in partnership with our listeners across Canada. Your gifts, your prayers every month make this possible.